Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode number five of The Hunting Collective. I'm Ben O'Brien. I'm joined today by a unique individual, to say the least, and that's Shane Mahoney. Shane is the president and CEO of, of an organization called Conservation Visions. You may have heard him speaking uh, in the public venue about conservation, about his efforts, all the things he's done in his life. Shane is a native of Newfoundland, but he's also a scientist, he's a wildlife manager, he's a policy innovator. He's a strategist, he's a filmmaker, he's a writer, he's a narrator. He's pretty much the most interesting man in conservation. Both by his awesome beard and hat, and the way he speaks, the way he orates, and how he comes across as a hunter. I wanted to catch up with Shane about a lot of things, but mostly about his knowledge of history and how he sees the hunting world right now. And I believe it was one of the more interesting and, and passionate conversations I've had in some time. So I'm happy to share that with you. And without further ado, Mr. Shane Mahoney. Enjoy. Shane, how's it going? It's going really well. Um, I'm uh, excited to have this exchange of uh, ideas and conversation with you. So uh, it'll be another uh, chance to talk about something we both feel really passionate about, which is the conservation of wildlife and our outdoor traditions. So uh, very happy to be here with you. Absolutely. Well, thanks for thanks for jumping on with me. I think before we get into it, we should address your, you told me you have a, a shiner currently. There was a little bit of an incident the other day. <laughs> yes. Well, I was doing some... Uh, tree limbing on the weekend, uh, taking advantage of the fact that here in Newfoundland this winter we don't have nearly as much snow as usual, and uh, I was up on a high ladder and uh, 
this particularly large branch off of some mature maple trees I have on my property decided to jump and smacked me in the, the face and uh, knocked me uh, just instantly off the ladder onto the onto the ground with a roaring chainsaw in my hand. Uh, but fortunately, the worst of things did not happen, and I just ended up with a fairly significant cut. And uh, but now I'm sporting a uh, a, a lovely-looking uh, bizarre eye, uh, which uh, wouldn't normally be a complication, except that I'm doing some filming in the next couple of days. So we're trying to figure out if if uh, that can work, and. Uh, if not, we'll just have to postpone and wait for my uh, my eye to go back to its normal color. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, the unexpected. I'm working on a cold myself. If anybody can hear that, so we're both we're both fifty percent, but we'll make this happen nonetheless. We will. We will absolutely. So I wanted to just talk to you about you know I've probably got many hours of conversation like we've had a little bit in the past about conservation and your philosophies and the things that you care about and are working on currently, but I, I realized I didn't really know much about your upbringing or, um, you know, really your hunting history. So I wanted to just kind of start by um, getting a little bit of your background, you know, growing up and your first introduction to hunting and conservation and, and really the the beginnings yeah. of, of, of your passions. Well, I think um, the most important and influential element in my thinking and in my life um, was that I was uh, raised, born and raised, obviously, in on the island of Newfoundland and lived in my uh, early childhood period and into my adolescence uh, in very rural circumstances in uh, an incredible society. Uh, and in an incredible place where the physical uh, attributes, uh, the sea and the land itself, a very rugged place, um, sort of imparts a sense of identity and a sense of awareness of the physical and biological world that is impossible uh, to miss. And um, I grew up in a culture where um, there weren't any policemen, uh, there weren't any hospitals, there weren't any lawyers, there weren't any insurance companies, um, there weren't any of those kinds of things, fire departments or things of that nature. They were really communities that relied absolutely fundamentally upon themselves and one another. Uh, we are the oldest non-native culture in North America. A lot of people don't realize that, but the, the, the firm cultural identity of a single place no other place but Newfoundland goes back so far as to have that. And um, we have, over a period of you know 500 years approximately, um, we developed a very close association with the natural world, uh, the fishing of fish, the whaling of whales, the sealing of seals, um, the hunting of wild creatures, the growing of our own food, domestic livestock, and so on. This became... Uh, just the natural order, it was the natural rhythm of things. And at the same time, uh, that uh, world gave all of us as children completely unfettered lives. Um, everyone in the community above a certain age who was male was known as uncle, so-and-so, and I don't mean that in some kind of uh, folk taleish way, this <laughs> was absolutely true. Everybody who was above a certain age as a woman was aunt. We went in and out of one another's homes. We we slept over in lots of cases as though we were parts of families. Uh, 
children that got into trouble were chastised by anyone in the community, but they were also looked after by everyone in the community. So I also came to um, appreciate over time the kind of values and the kind of cultural identity that comes with people who live close to the natural world. Um, and of course, this has been maintained and is exemplified in a sort of very crystalline way with the uh, uh, the new play that has made such a hit on Broadway and elsewhere now around the world called Come From Away, which talks about how Newfoundlanders welcomed 70% uh, of all the transatlantic travelers, most of whom were Americans, who were coming back uh, to North America on that fateful day of 9-11. Okay. Uh, and so I came to a very early appreciation of this relationship between human cultures and traditions, the harvesting of wild creatures, and our absolute total dependence on the natural world as a concrete, inseparable kind of idea. Um, and of course, all of this takes place organically in a child and a, a human being as they mature, but there's absolutely no question that this is the genesis of it. More importantly, even than that, perhaps, is the fact that um, because of this childhood, um, animals and uh, nature <clears throat> became, were not only incredibly accessible to me and to all of my friends and siblings and so on, but it was, um, it was entirely possible for us to enjoy it every day without fear. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we, we, we lived in a society where everyone knew one another and where uh, no one was concerned if children disappeared for long hours or played at the end of wars or went trouting by themselves, as I so often did, even as a very small boy of five and six years of age and even earlier. And um, also, of course, there were the domestic animals, the horses and the, <clears throat> the sheep <clears throat> and the hens and so on that, that people kept. And so you, you always had these kinds of companions around you. And then if your inclination was stronger than some, which there's always variation, uh, then, of course, that environment set it free. And I came... Uh, my life with animals began as a very, very small boy. And while hunting has had an impact on me, animals have shaped me. Yeah. And so I don't see hunting as the ultimate driving force in my association with animals. I see animals as the driving force of my engagement with wildlife and with animals. And I see hunting... Uh, as something that is a part of that um, and which um, um, makes it entirely possible for me to say that I hunt and I love animals deeply without absolutely any sense of contradiction or any sense of fear mm -hmm. that I would not be able to defend that in any circumstance or any debate anywhere in the world. Um, and it extended to wild creatures as well as domestic creatures. I love the ponies. I love the chickens. I love the sheep. I, um, I, and, and I've never lost fascination with animals, whether they are domesticated animals or whether they are wild creatures. 
and uh, I guess the ultimate the ultimate uh, expression of that journey, Ben, yep. is that I really, and this offends some people, of course, uh, but I really don't see very much difference between so-called us and them. Um, and uh, this opens up a lot of philosophical discussions, of course, and sometimes makes hunters feel, some hunters, not all, but some hunters feel a bit uneasy. But... Mm-hmm. Um, for me as a hunter, um, you have to accept that truth yeah. and still be able to do it. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, there's a lot there um, to unpack, but especially, but, but what strikes me is just in your upbringing, um, there's a lot of aspects that we're missing in the modern world. Uh, we're missing in the urban world and even the suburban world your connection to the people around you, you know, that deep sense of trust that, that you had there and that, that would allowed you to probably explore more than maybe you would have if you didn't have a sense of trust in your community uh, and things like that. So I think that, you know, your passion for animals and the, th- and the connection you feel to them, I'm sure was just driven closer by the environment that you, that you grew up in. I find that to be, be something in the modern world that we, we lack. And um, um, I think more folks could, could, take heed to, to the way you grew up and, and the the changes that we've seen in the last few decades. Well, I think that is true. And of course, it's a um, it's part of the great conundrum for conservation in, in, in many ways, because we know that there is increasing um, urbanization occurring worldwide. I mean, there is a there is a continuous and strengthening move uh, to cities, of course, by people in cultures uh, all around the world. And uh, this is having a lot of effects in the sense that it is separating a lot of people from the natural world more and more. But at the same time, it is also freeing up uh, considerable landscapes that at one time were occupied by people that are now being reclaimed by wildlife in many parts of the world. Um, which a lot of people don't think about, but this is one of the outcomes of urbanization, which is a benefit to conservation in the sense that it's mm-hmm. more space for, for wildlife to thrive and exist. Um, the flip side of it, of course, is this problem of dissociation from the natural world. And we are going to have to find ways to bring people to a concern for animals and wildlife, regardless of where they live, Fortunately, because our relationship with animals is such of an evolutionary thing, I mean, it's so deeply embedded in us. But the one thing that city people, if I could call people hmm. city people versus rural people, do not differ on is their fascination with animals and with wildlife. Um, that's why the television shows like the BBC's Planet Earth, uh, which to a large extent simply featured the biological diversity of the planet, attracts the largest television audience of all time. Um, So we're not helpless in this debate, as uh, some of the rhetoric might suggest. And because children like technology, just like we did as children, just like every human child has since we broke the first stone, um, you know, this uh, this, this doesn't mean that we cannot define a significant conservation ethic within uh, people in those circumstances. And we might be reminded as hunters and anglers that it was the urban elites of the United States of America 
the George Bird Grinnells and the Theodore Roosevelt's. It was the urban elites of your country which led the movement for conservation at the turn of the 20th century. Well, absolutely. There was a lot of Europeanism in those ideas yes. of who would be a hunter, right? I mean, um, that leads into a great uh, a subject that I wanted to cover. I'm not, I wasn't sure we'd get to it today because there's so much. But just uh, the beginning of conservation in this country um, and how, you know, 80 years is a long time um, since we really got into the things like Pittman-Robertson Acts and some of the more important legislation. Um, but I believe it was, you know, the turn of the century when um, Pinochet defined what conservation was and started to, to understand this idea that market hunting was going to, to, was ruinous to our wildlife and to America. And we needed to have a different set of ideals. Um, so talk, I know you have a lot of knowledge about that. And you've been really involved in, you know, the North American model of wildlife conservation and theorizing and, and talking a lot about how conservation came to be and then uh, in the pursuing, you know, preceding decades, why it needed to, to change when it did. So I would love, you know, I, as an aside to that, I think there's a lot of hunters that do not know much about that history and, and are a bit removed from things like Pittman-Robertson um, and, and funds they pay into because they are generations removed from the idea that it was necessary. So I think it's, it's important to, to cover those things. Well, it is important because in the broadest conceptual sense, um, knowing our history is uh, what prepares us for the present and the future. Um, and also, knowing our history is what helps uh, give our nations and our people uh, a sense of identity. And one part of the history of the United States and of Canada, and certainly of some other countries, but um, really significantly in the United States, uh, was the rise of this idea of conservation and which was really kind of the forerunner of the sustainable use movement, et cetera. Um, you know, it's hard for people today to believe that 120 and indeed 150 years ago, um, the ravages um, being applied to wildlife and other natural resources, such as forests, for example, but also river systems and so on, were just extreme in in the United States in particular and in parts of settled Canada. Um, the depletion of wildlife was at such a state that, as I've said and reminded many policymakers, if we had had uh, Endangered Species Acts, you know, at the turn of the 20th century in the United States and Canada, most of the iconic species that most readily come to mind to people when you say the word wildlife, you know, such as black bear or white-tailed deer, mule deer, elk, you know, uh, species of uh, Canada geese, wood ducks, I mean, wild turkeys, and all these kind of iconic species, they would have all been on the endangered species list. There's absolutely no question of that. The yeah. depletions were so extreme and so geographically extensive and widespread that every one of them would have been listed. And yet, um, we live at a time where, as hunters uh, like to point out, most of those iconic species, of course, are ones that are 
very safely distanced from anything like an endangered species listing, yes. and they are in extraordinary abundance in many cases. So we have so many deer being killed on our highways and turkeys in our driveways, on and on and on it goes. So this is an example, first of all, of the extraordinary capacity of a country to move from wildlife crisis to wildlife triumph. And of course, every country in the world is preoccupied with this issue today, and yet we have a demonstration of our capacity as human beings to undertake such rescue missions and be successful. The second most important comment about that, of course, is that the people who responded to the crisis <clears throat> were people who, in many cases, never needed to worry about their opportunities in life at all, <clears throat> because they were elites, they were from wealthy backgrounds, and so on and so forth, and <clears throat> yet they threw themselves into this fight as nationalists, essentially, as Americans, as people who believed, as Roosevelt articulated, that if you did not care, <clears throat> excuse me, about the natural resources of your country, and if you did not want to play a part in their management and custodianship so that future generations could inherit them and, and share in them, then you really had no right to call yourself an American. And this ultimately got translated in the American social political environment to the White House because as a result of, you know, uh, an assassination, obviously, uh, um, Teddy Roosevelt comes to power, he becomes the president of the United States of America, and he draws into the vortex of power in the White House these ideas and then brings them to the nation and to the governors, to the to the political infrastructure of the country, and then sets about, you know, doing the famous things that people know about him, you know, setting up national parks and wilderness areas, wildlife reserves and all of that. And while all of that was important, the most important thing that people like Pinchot and Grinnell and, and Roosevelt gave, and which Roosevelt personified, was he gave to the American people this idea that conservation of wildlife and natural resources mattered. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that not everybody had been a fan of Teddy Roosevelt's when he was in the presidency, and despite the fact that, you know, when he, he left the presidency, obviously, eventually, um, it's a very interesting that no American president since, Democrat or Republican, has really done has really done much to damage the basic kind of infrastructures that Teddy Roosevelt put in place, despite the fact that he had so many critics at the time. Yeah. This suggests to me that uh, he embedded something in America. Yes. He embedded something uh, in the American people, and that that makes political leaders think twice about changing too much the way that you, the resources of your country are managed. And this doesn't mean that every American citizen knows the history. It doesn't mean that every American citizen walks around preaching this. Of course, they don't. But still, there has to be a reason for why his programs and institutions have been so resilient over a century. Yeah. Well, and I think the uniqueness of those ideas is really codified in the fact that today, every American values wildlife. I mean, we, we disagree in a lot of ways about how that value looks and feels and what it means. But I think we all, unlike, you know, Africa or other areas of the world, we all have a value 
a, a determined value for those animals. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, the, the legacy of, of the early conservationists. I mean, I think it has to be that, that there's no one in this country that would, would stand for the wholesale slaughter of, of the animals like it was in market hunting times. No, I think that's that's absolutely true. And the sensibilities of the nation have changed in many ways, of course, but I think you're absolutely right about wildlife. And uh and of course this is the great uh, this is the great suit of armor that uh that conservation wears, right? I mean, there's there is a citizen citizenry backing these values. It's not just a handful of professionals in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service or Geological Survey or the National Park Service. It's not just a, a group of, uh, you know, of effective bureaucrats buried within, you know, government offices in Washington. It's not just a Secretary of Interior. It's not just anything. It really, the, the, the solid fabric of this movement lies in the, this sort of generalized kind of awareness and sensibility that is uh, now part of the American psyche. And, you know, I think this is what uh, all opportunity for conservation going forward springs from, that reservoir of commitment and hope. Absolutely. Well, then then you go to 1937, specifically, when Franklin Roosevelt got a bunch of people together, 2,000 conservationists, in fact, uh, and they called it the North American Wildlife Conference. And, And that was, I think, that is a huge point in, in the readings I've done in the history of, of conservation because they then began to put together a way to pay for all these ideas um, because obviously you care about wildlife, you want to take care of them and leave places for them to roam and, and for hunters to want to pursue them. Well, you have to have some sort of funding to do that. So talk about a little bit about you know the user pays public benefits model and a little bit about what was happening in the, the late 1930s there around Franklin Roosevelt and then the passing of the Pittman-Robertson Act and then what that meant going forward um, because I think that's often also a lost aspect of, of the conservation movement. Well, I think one of the first and most obvious um, resonances and similarities in fact between the you know, this time period of the mid mid and late 1930s and the original cement period of the, you know, turn of the 20th century and a little bit before was that both were fueled by crisis. Um, America obviously had, you know, um, suffered the, the incredible effects of this sort of Dust Bowl era. Uh, the economic challenges were there. And interestingly enough, of course, a relative of of Theodore Roosevelt's is in the White House and does a great many things uh, in the conservation realm, the conservation core. And yes, there was a variety of pieces of legislation established in that time period. Um, You know, the the North American Conference and Wildlife Management Institute were founded at that time. A number of very influential NGO groups came to rise at that time. <clears throat> the Wildlife Federation, uh, just a just a, a the cooperative wildlife research unit process. I mean, mm-hmm. there were many, many, many really substantial, innovative changes that took place in that period of crisis in America at that time under Franklin D. Roosevelt's uh, Roosevelt's leadership. The 
the idea is that there should be a user pay system to some extent, and that that kind of, in, in, in a sense, oversimplifies conservation in America, but the phrase is often used, and so it's helpful to discuss it in those terms. You know, this, this um, need was identified much, much, much earlier. Uh, George Bird Grinnell was the first one that I am aware of who actually wrote in Forest and Stream, which he was the editor of for many decades, um, that it should be the hunting community of the United States of America who paid for all wildlife enforcement. Um, this was an idea that was 30, 40 years ahead of its time. Mm. But nevertheless, the, the notion that there needed to be money, that the resource had to be managed and protected, that the money had to come from somewhere. This was already floating in the sort of conservation air. And when we finally saw this solidify or codify, it was when you know people decided, okay, let's pass legislation and find a way to raise significant amounts of money to help support the state agencies fundamentally in your country, which were, of course, uh, constitutionally, uh, legally, given the responsibility for the public trust of those resources, in other words, to manage and custodian mm -hmm. those resources uh, that, uh, you know, that existed within their individual jurisdictions. And so the idea surfaced that, you know, a way to do this was to put uh, a federal excise tax, you know, on commodities that would be used by people who were involved in the outdoors, principally people who hunted, um, and so rifles and ammunition and things of this nature, and that we could place a tax uh, there that would eventually be, would be redistributed back to the states uh, based on the formula of land areas and population, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that those monies would then be given directly to the state agencies to manage the state wildlife resources. Now, of course, you know, it... First of all, there were more than hunters involved in that process because obviously anyone who practiced shooting, for example, and the target practiced skeet shooting and trap shooting and so on and so forth, anyone who actually purchased firearms and ammunition were also contributing to that fund and therefore also contributing to the state agencies' capacities uh, to manage wildlife, whether they were hunters or not. So yeah. there was always a more diverse community helping to fund the state agencies than just hunters. But over the intervening time period between 1937 and the present day, you know, the Pritman-Robertson Act and the monies that have come from it, I mean, it, it literally had, it has raised billions upon billions of dollars, yeah. irreplaceable amounts of money yeah. that have been diverted to the management of wildlife in, in your country. And even to this day, of course, the dollars spent by hunters, and also now because of subsequent legislation, the money spent by anglers, people who fish, um, are a major component, a majority proportion of the monies that uh, state agencies have yeah. to operate with. Yeah. So it's a, it was a seminal piece of legislation, uh, borrowed on ideas that had been launched 30 to 40 years earlier, finally enacted and passed and you know has just made an absolutely unbelievable difference to the conservation and management of wildlife in your country and you are the only country in the world that I'm aware of who has something of this specific nature and it is not by uh, any coincidence in my view 
that the United States of America also has the most mature, the most complex, the most innovative conservation uh, institutions and systems in the world. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think, you know, I think uh, in my research and, and readings, it's about 60% of those state uh, agency funds come from um, either license sales or or Pittman Robertson funds um, or excise taxes. That's correct, and that's that's that's, absolutely that's huge. And over the over this eighty years of its existence, there's something like eighteen billion dollars worth of funding that's that's been pushed in. That's just that number is amazing to me, and it's amazing as a, as a child that I wasn't taught that, or coming up as a hunter that that wasn't in, in, just instilled in me that you're part of this history, this tapestry of a bunch of really smart people who cared about wildlife. They created this amazing thing that you're now paying into um, for this privilege. And I, I wonder if you have thoughts on why we don't, uh, as Americans, celebrate that as much um, as I think we should. Well, I think part of the reason uh, is, is just that, um, you know, you have to have um, uh, the idea of communicating history has to be someone's purpose, just like anything else in society. Um, the idea of communicating your political history, for example, in the United States of America has been a, has been undertaken by generations of amazing writers and historians and academics, etc. And so, you know, what happened during, for example, the formative years of the the founding of the of the United States, what happened during the time of the Revolutionary War, what happened at the time of the building of the consensus at strife around the constitutional frameworks, um, what happened during to America during uh, the Civil War, what America's entry in the two world wars. You know, it, it, you know, America has done. Your country's done an amazing job of capturing that history and bringing that history to the American people. Similarly. Um, you know, the efforts of your armed forces over, you know, a very long period of time, obviously, has been widely celebrated and communicated mm-hmm. and commemorated um, by, uh, you know, American citizens who, 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 who gave that knowledge and, and, and offered that knowledge to the rest of the public. And that's why there is such strong support in your country today for the men and women who serve in your armed forces. But someone has to do it. Someone has to take this on. And, you know, while many people today talk about the North American model, I remember when that term was born. And that term did not exist until 1988. 1988. It did not exist in the English language. Yet a lot of people I talk to today, you know, kind of, you know, speak about that term as though it's kind of always been with us. Well, no, it wasn't always with us at all. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop 
for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that it was a Canadian who came up with the term, of course, uh, Dr. Valerius Geist. And I was a student of his, of course, and uh, remain a great and fast friend of this amazing man. And I undertook uh, the idea of popularizing it and then working with other colleagues. We, we did just that. Yeah. And so when somebody raises the term North American model, it is a primary example of what I, I am saying in response to your question. It took a group of people who were determined to communicate this history to make that emission without any real resources. We didn't have any plan. All I knew was that this concept had to go forward. And that yeah. led to uh, efforts that um, you know, eventually involved state agencies and provincial agencies and governments. And when I see the North American model as a term today, it makes me sort of marvel at the fact that we can bring a new concept to the broad public and have it embedded and have it talked about and have it exercised. But what it amounted to was uh, a need, a need to explain to people that there was, in fact, a model in North America. So in a way, it too was born of crisis, because one of the reasons why that term was developed was because there was a growing trend in Canada and the United States at that time, in the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s, and which persists to this day of privatizing wildlife. Hmm. And um, the, the arguments that developed between those who were in favor and those of us who opposed the privatization of wildlife, which remains, as you know, a very hot topic, uh, led to the question of, well, what's at stake? And it was a result of that question being posed in people's minds that there developed a response, 
and the response to what was at stake eventually became formulated in the concept of the North American model, which described the system of institutions, policies, and laws that arose out of the sustainable use of wildlife, which we've just talked about, going back to the time of Roosevelt and Grinnell, etc., sure. uh, that that system was real, it wasn't a falsehood, and if we were to privatize wildlife, many, many, many of those policies, laws, and institutions would be rendered either uh, unimportant, useless, contradictory, um, and eventually we would undermine the successes of North American conservation. And that's where that term came from. So it too, very much been, was really born out of the need to defend something. That's the need. That's to, something really to <clears throat> really to look in look through here in this conversation. I mean, the this I believe there are seven tenets of the, of that <clears throat> model. Talk through that. I mean, talk through how those were determined, or or how you call those out, and and what that structure looked like, and why that was important. Well, I think the first thing to say at the outset with this, because the, the, you know this is a, a conversation that. Uh, you know, often arises, and as and as different viewpoints are brought to bear on it, you know, questions arose. Well, you know, why seven? Why not ten? Why not this one? Why not that one? And the the idea of putting together this framework was not to um, was not to suggest that this was all there was, or to say this could not be rewritten or redefined or improved upon or added to. There was never any of that kind of authoritarian kind of dictation going on when this uh, ferment started in the late 1980s and carried through through the 90s and now is in sort of common discussion of parlance. No, what this was was an attempt to remind people in Canada and the United States that we did have this system, first of all, that there really was a system. And that system included things like the Pittman-Robertson Fund, and it included things like state agencies, and it included things like government programs, and it included things like international treaties for migratory birds. It included things like the strong science programs and so on and so forth. And it was and they were identified as major principles or ideas to remind everybody that they need not have happened. When we started the conservation movement at the late 1900s, early part of the, or the late 1800s, early part of the 20th century, we had very few game laws. We had no enforcement agencies. We did not have any university programs. We did not have any state or provincial agencies. We did not have any federal agencies responsible for these resources. We did not have the science programs at the universities. We did not have any of those things. And nothing said that we had to. But they emerged bit by bit, synergizing and actualizing one another until we built up this system that relies on agencies and professionals and academics and and, and participants, hunters and anglers, and other people. And so the seven principles that are identified should be seen as guideposts, mm -hmm. as very important and integral, and they're principles in the sense that they, they speak to philosophical things. You know, um, wildlife 
the marketing of dead wildlife, <clears throat> excuse me, would no longer be part of the North American system. And that obviously was an attempt to move against the market hunting issues. Yeah. The principle that wildlife is an international resource. You know, the idea that wildlife moved across boundaries, both across state boundaries and between the United States and Canada, Mexico and other parts of the world, and that only by accepting that could we come up with the institutions that would be necessary for conserving them, waterfowl being a best example. The idea that wildlife, uh, that hunting uh, would be a right of every citizen, but of course they would need to be appropriately trained and, and you know certified uh, and to do it under legal means and so on. So th these were the kinds of principles that were identified and originally by Valerius Geist uh, and promulgated afterwards by many others, but they were identified to remind again people in governments and in policy institutions that these principles really mattered. For example, the principle that science is the basis for management. This is a principle that we have abided by in North America for the last 100 years, and 75, 80 years since we started to gain real knowledge of, of wildlife science. And as you know, there is a big debate today about whether we are starting to turn our back on science and manage wildlife from a totally emotional perspective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a really important, Ben, that the audience understand that the principles are are not sort of meant to be like the like Moses delivering tablets. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. the, the, the there's a flexibility and an organic part of all of this that we have to accept. And that means we have to accept a lot of different viewpoints as being potentially legitimate. But of course they have to all pass uh, the critical test. And the critical test is whether uh, those viewpoints are in the best long-term interest of wildlife. Right, right. And I think that is such, I mean, to for everyone listening here, I knew a little bit <clears throat> about the beginning of that model and, and learned about it here recently and was shocked to know that it, it wasn't longer reaching than, than the 80s. But I think no. where you spin that into, you know, you start off at the turn of the century and you spin that into the current day. You look at uh, the, the grizzly bear hunting ban in British Columbia and the, con the, the constant really just debate around wolves and, and apex predators, mountain lions, and the emotionality that, that, that is sucked into these debates uh, where pragmatism is kind of not able to shine through. Do you, do, are you concerned about about those ideas and, and because of the history uh, of our wildlife conservation is so pragmatic, do you, do you feel like the loss of that in some way is, is going to be uh, one of the hardest battles that conservation has to fight? I think it's one of the battles that conservation has to fight, but again, I take a somewhat different view of all of this um, confusion and mayhem, if you will. <laughs> Because at the same time that we can argue that you know science must be the basis for decision making, I think we all really accept it in a quiet moment of reflection that emotionality and passion um, are not restricted to any particular group within society or the conservation debate. Hunters are passionate. Non-hunters are passionate. Anti-hunters are passionate. Um, those who have more of a pre 
preservation philosophy, who are primarily focused on, say, things like national parks and, and uh, you know, protected areas. They have great passion and great commitment, and they have a very legitimate argument to make about uh, these, these uh, institutions and policies being a part of the conservation matrix. I don't think there's anybody today who would say that we do not need to consider protected areas mm -hmm. uh, or national parks or state parks or things of that nature, even if they exclude hunting in some or many or cases. Uh, I think most people would agree, yes, they are very much needed. Um, people might say, you know, well, I only think they should be in place if there's an animal that's in desperate need of a protected space. Other people would say, no, no, I think they must be much more expansive than that. But I think most people would agree that we need a, a, a if I could say, a more preservationist element in the mix. Mm -hmm. At the same time, hunters and anglers are very passionate about their traditions and often speak with great emotion and little science about uh, their particular activities. <laughs> um, and I think that's really helpful because I think if we were all to speak simply dispassionately about animals, I don't think there would be any hope for them in this world. Mm. So I think the trick here is to realize that there are certain elements and questions that demand a combination of science and passionate commitment and that we need to collectively, all sides of this debate, figure out that appropriate balance. Now, there are philosophical differences between people. You know, some people believe in animal rights, for example, as a somewhat more extreme view, and a lot of people do not. But as you move down and across the spectrum of conservation ideas, you know, there's much more similarity between groups and people than there are differences. And we need to find that ground as well as a, as a basis for discussion. I am, however, uh, very concerned that uh, science is being, um, um, the, the profile that science has in the management of wildlife is being decreased. I think we are living in a world where information overload is the common practice. We are living in a world because of our new technologies that allow every opinion to be instantly received by hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands, millions of people. Um, and that phenomenon is affecting a lot more than just the management of wildlife. It is undermining scholarship in many ways because everybody is an expert. Yeah. It is undermining good science in many ways because anybody can get out their, in quotation marks, scientific opinion uh, you know, th through mechanisms that are not controlled in any sense. You know, it's not like you have to publish in a peer-reviewed journal because you can just get it out there through Facebook or YouTube or whatever you want to do, a TED Talk, whatever. This is leading to a destabilized circumstance uh, of knowledge, and I think this has very significant and dangerous implications for... Um, uh, for the management of wildlife. And let me give you an example. Sure. So <clears throat> we have a great many people who are opposed to the idea of uh, international trophy hunting, for example. 
um, because they they identify it as an egotistical uh, proposition. Somebody travels from one country to a place like Africa and they shoot an elephant or a lion and things of this nature, and then they bring back uh, trophies and they put them in their, their living rooms or whatever, their trophy rooms. And a lot of people have a negative view towards this, including, by the way, many hunters, as you know. Absolutely. Um, but the so the emotionality is don't like this um, you know the animal should not be taken for that reason the primary motivation is not for food etc cetera, etc cetera, and so I don't believe this should be done but the reality is unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you view this issue the reality the scientific empirical knowledge-based reality is that that activity contributes to the conservation of wildlife habitat and wildlife species in many regions. It isn't perfect. It isn't without corruption and loss and, and uh, disfigurement. But there's no question that when you analyze and bring the facts together and interpret them, that those activities help in some specific cases to significantly improve the chances for existence for lions and mm -hmm. prey species and ecosystems indeed that would otherwise be lost to other activities if hunting was not occurring there that would end up inevitably in the loss of wildlife. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a classic example that's before us right now. On the emotional side, many people find it difficult to understand. But when faced with the absolute facts that here is the alternative, have these activities and protect that wildlife landscape or lose those activities and lose the wildlife that exists there. And many people will say, ah, I didn't realize that. I still don't like it perhaps, but I have to accept that it has merit for the conservation of wildlife. Yeah. And I think this is the important thing, Ben, about emotionality. The important thing is to have a litmus test for emotionality. So I have a lot of people in the non-hunting world who dialogue with me, and I have a lot of people in the hunting world who dialogue with me. And I have some people in the world who dialogue with me who say, we cannot understand how you are a hunter. And I say, I understand why you find it difficult to understand. But for me, there is only one question. So whether I like a particular decision, you know, whether that's about protected areas or, or hunting and angling or any, any issue that you can think about that impinges on conservation, my only, only question ultimately to myself is, will this benefit wildlife? And if it does, I'm in favor of it, even yes. if I don't like it. And I'm against it. I'm against it, obviously, if it fails that test. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. Yeah, Shane, I think it's a great point you make about emotionality. And I, I just feel like because hunting and conservation, and especially in a different continent with a different set of value systems, I think that that complexity and nuance is is lost in that emotionality, and that's what really what hunting is grounded upon is is that it is nuanced and that it is complex, um, and it, it a lot of times is oxymoronic as you as you explain. There's a lot of ideas that killing animals to save them is is a general one we get all the time that people say, well, that makes no sense. Well, yeah, maybe on its face it makes no sense, but. Uh, if you use, you know, your question of is it good for wildlife as the guiding principle, I think that always gets us gets us to the right place. Do you do you feel like specifically the British Columbia grizzly bear ban is something that um, will be repeated, and, and does that concern you, or do you feel like that's a uh, an outlier in some way? No, I wouldn't say that it's an outlier, um, but I also think that it's a it's a classic example of how of how our attachment uh, to wildlife at an emotional level and a psychological level really tends to play out. Um, the issue of the hunting of carnivores generally, mountain lions, grizzly bears, um, wolves, um, is a, you know, is a, it's a phenomenon that's debated intensively not only in North America, but it's intensively debated in, uh, in Europe as well. At present time, where lynx and wolves and even bears, brown bears are, are expanding their range. I mean, we have we have wolves now living, you know, in the outskirts of Rome, um, and so it's generating an incredibly intense discussion and debate 
on social acceptance of the animals themselves by rural people and shepherds and you know people who have livestock, etc., uh, and, of course, by people who are opposed at a philosophical level to all kinds of hunting. So it, it certainly is not an isolated event. And of all the hunting that takes place in in Africa, of course, you know, it is the, uh, it is the hunting of, of lions, which is one of the absolute most intensely discussed and debated. And, of course, uh, the conservation programs that have developed in other countries, let's say for India, for example, which is, you know, very much a conservation program built in almost entirely on protected areas and preservationist ideals. It was the tiger, of course, that became sort of emblematic and sort of was helpful or encouraging or incentivizing uh, for that uh, nation to to undertake the, the massive conservation efforts and very successful conservation efforts, I would point out, mm. that they have. So I certainly don't see this grizzly bear carnivore issue, you know, as being isolated in any sense. And the debate within British Columbia has been ongoing for a very, very long period of time. Um, and that province has seesawed back and forth on the issue. It has mounted several scientific reviews of grizzly bear uh, populations and sustainability over time. In fact, the province of British Columbia has invested quite heavily, more heavily than most uh, jurisdictions politically, in trying to, you know, sort of get at this question and decide whether there should be hunting for grizzly bears or not. Um, so I think that we can uh, expect a great deal more of this. Um, if I were to look at this whole issue from the anti-hunting uh, point of view, I think that um, there's a tremendous amount of focus globally on African hunting, and trophy hunting, and so on, in the African context at the present time, which we're all aware of. Um, it remains to be seen what is going to unfold on the African continent. There's many, many great complexities, obviously, there. Um, but I think it is fair to say that there will be increasing attention paid over time to the hunting of the charismatic big carnivores in North America. Mm. And uh, that is going to lead to uh, even further increased debates over wolves, reintroductions, management uh, status of these species, interactions with the Endangered Species Act. I think any of us who believe that that is not going to continue and be an intense debate are fooling ourselves. It is going to be very real. On the other hand, um, you know, the idea that we can have unrestrained growth of large, dangerous carnivores in our midst, grizzly bears, for example, but it also wolves, which can be dangerous animals, of course, and mountain lions, which we know can prey on people, etc. Absolutely. You know, whether, uh, you know, society writ large, it has a, a sort of a, an unlimited either indifference or willingness to accept these large carnivores in their midst, you know, uh, that remains to be seen. And I, you know, I highly doubt that... Um, you know, people are going to eventually want just, you know, uncontrolled numbers of these of these big predators uh, in their midst. We we live in a time where that realistically, uh, you know, cannot play out. And of course, what 
tends to happen in these debates is that the people who don't necessarily live with the dangerous wildlife uh, are often the ones who most vociferously want it protected at all costs. Now, having said all of that, there is a reason why these big carnivores capture our imagination, generate so much emotionality. Uh, this is not by accident, and this is not a product of modern media or any of those things. You know, we have always had this extraordinary relationship with the big carnivores. You know, we mythologized them, we feared them, uh, we marveled at them. Um, you know, we have always had, even as uh, hunter-gatherer peoples, there have always been cults and and amulets and things that have celebrated these big carnivores as a sense of you know, power and, and prestige and so on and so forth. So we should not see the modern debate over these big carnivores as something new, or if you're on the anti-hunting side, see hunter's interest in managing or hunting those animals as something new and bizarre, nor from the hunting side should we see the emotionality to safeguard, protect, you know, those those animals as being something that is bizarre or new either. It kind of always has been with us. Mm -hmm. And it's for that reason that alone that I feel confident that we will continue to have major debates over what is best to do with um, with these big carnivores. Um, and, um, you know, society's values change over time. Uh, the values in America and the values in Canada, the two countries that we talk most about within the North American context, mm -hmm. although they're not the only countries, Mexico is there. In those two countries, and I may say probably particularly in the United States, um, there are really significant cultural shifts taking place as the society becomes more diverse, uh, as uh, you know, new and different values emerge in the urbanized centers, as we've talked about earlier in the podcast, mm -hmm. there's a lot of reason for us to expect that the idea that carnivore hunting uh, will be criticized, you know, we, we should expect that this is probably going to continue because of the social trends that we can see before us. Sure. And sure. Um, the real question is then, um, how do we, uh, from a hunting perspective, you know, mount the most socially uh, effective uh, arguments for um, having a sustainable harvest, a management-based harvest of those of those carnivores. Yeah, and some might say that we we are already doing that. I would agree. Some might say we're probably not doing it as effectively as we would hope to, and I would agree with that also. <laughs> So I think we we need to be prepared for a continuing long-term debate over the harvesting of grizzly bears. And it will never be settled, Ben, in my view, uh, uh, absolutely. In other words, is it possible for me to envisage a time in British Columbia, for example, where some kind of limited harvesting of grizzly bears, um, you know, is, is permitted or... Could things change again? Yes, I believe they could. Sure. Um, and um, but even if they do, they won't change in that direction forever 
either. Yeah. Well, and you make uh, some great points there. One, one of those is that this is just a continuing conversation. Like th- this is through generations. Obviously, you know the cultural and societal changes will drive this conversation one way or the other way. But this is to me just a continuing conversation. And and if it was a if it was one question, I feel feel like we all have to ask is is and uh, you said this in the past is like is what you're doing good for wildlife? Is it good for society? Good for for our society, then also is it good for wildlife? And if you can continue to answer that question, yes, every time, um, I think we we will be okay in the sense of hunting. Um, but one thing that has concerned me, and we've talked about this in the, the previous podcast a good bit, is just the general sense that hunting in and of itself, the act of hunting, does not have the best public relations um, in, in the grand scheme of, of the world, whether that's, you know, moreover the Africa trophy hunting issue, but, but generally just the killing of an animal for sport or, or how you would explain modern sport hunting. Do you feel like, you know, in that ongoing conversation, there is a way that you would, would talk to hunters and say like, Hey, here, here are a couple of things we can do better to drive this conversation in such a way that eliminates some of the negative PR that we currently feel. Um, whether you think it's due to, to really what hunters have put out there into the world or that the world is changing um, in the face of hunting. Long question. <laughs> but Well, I think there's a tremendous amount we can do, uh, frankly. And I, I've always believed this, and I've always marveled at um, how slow we are to do them. Hmm. I, I can't explain. Um you know, I, I, I don't find it hard to explain the, de- the debate that's going on in society at all. I don't find it hard to understand the value systems or the philosophies or the opinions of people who are opposed to hunting at all. I, I don't have any difficulty understanding that. Uh, just as I don't have any difficulty understanding why people feel so passionately about hunting and and how people can become real conservationists, not only through hunting, but as part of their hunting uh, world. I, I don't have any problem understanding any of that. And I don't think any group on either side of that divide, if we can call it that, are, 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 are more or less intelligent or more or less fanatical or more or less emotional, as I've said before. I, I don't think any of that uh, is, is a distinction. What I really find difficult understanding is why the hunting public has been so slow to do some of the obvious things that we always should have been doing and to cease doing some of the things that we obviously should never have been doing. So in the latter case, for example, some of the uh, graphic uh, imagery that we have been showing uh, for now 25 years quarter of a century, it's a long time, um, on our television shows, um, often accompanied by, you know, the glorification of the kill and of an animal in suffering or an animal which has suffered. Um, This has done incredible damage to the hunting world, whether the hunters want to admit it, whether the production companies want to admit it, whether the uh, television stations want to commit it. Uh, or admit it, uh, I don't really care. Uh, It has. Um, And it continues in today's world of 
almost um, inevitable viral exchange, it has opened up uh, the possibility through uh, hard-to-track uh, channels, uh, an enormous flow of this kind of information to distant computers and cell phones all around the world that provide no context and which inevitably lead the naive observer to fall on the side of opposition to hunting. Um, things we also should never have done is we should never have uh, tried to um, prove to the anti-hunting world that the only thing we care about when we call ourselves conservation is the, uh, are the animals that we hunt. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to ask you, Ben, and ask your audience, how many of the organizations that we have uh, that are based on, on, on hunters uh, and founded by hunters and talk about doing conservation, how many of them are really focused on non-hunted species at all? Yeah, very few. How many awards do you see being given out at those events for people working on non-hunted species? What do we think? Conservation ended with the game animals? Hmm. Well, that's the exact message we give all the time. And our industries are giving it all the time. So when you ask about the things we shouldn't be doing, I think there's, <laughs> there's probably millions of little things that go on the social media circuit every day we shouldn't be doing. And then to get on and say that, uh, you know, uh, criticize people who are against hunting and say that they have no conservation ethic and so on. Did John Muir not have a conservation ethic? Yep. Who's going to stand up and say that? No one. That's ridiculous. So this yeah. is the other things that we do as, a, as hunters that are uh, things that we, 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 we should not be doing, but we, we do all the time. We shouldn't be slandering people with sort of racial uh, nomenclatures like greenies, you know, and antis. Notice how they all end in those E's, yep. like Nazis, and so on and so forth. What do you think that makes us look like? Yep. I mean, these are all things that I look at and I've looked at for 25 years, and I've, I've, I've spoken as much, I think, as any human being before hunting audiences and talked about these issues to virtually no avail. In, in my own personal estimation, yeah, I don't what, think I've moved the needle one bit. What do you What do you think? What do you think it's going to take to change that? Is it going to take some kind well, of? Well, I think change? what it's going to take to change that is a crisis. Yeah, and I think we're getting damn close. In the last five years, we lost two million hunters in the United States of America. By our own surveys, we've lost two million. We have a demographic wave moving through the hunting population in the United States and Canada that inevitably means, we're, inevitably means we are going to lose millions more. And by the demographic wave, I'm obviously referring to just we're a very old age class. Yeah, we right? call them... Age classes in the hunting world. We call them baby and boomers in this country, that generation of 55 yeah, and, and older. and the recruitment processes are not replacing them. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to need a crisis, and we're also going to need to have some conservation leadership in the hunting community stand up and do certain things. So it's fine for me to say what we shouldn't be doing, but I think there, there also needs to be ideas about what we should be doing. Hmm. So here's an idea that I have offered up to a number of organizations in the hunting world. Take some significant percentage of all the money that comes in from the, from the hunting world and devote it into some 
broader conservation effort. Why don't we give 10% of the money that we raise to non-hunted species efforts? Yeah. Sea turtles or dolphins or other things that have captured butterflies, things that have captured the imagination of children around the world. Yeah. Why don't we prove that we are really about conservation writ large and not just about conserving the animals that we shoot? Why don't we establish awards for people who do things in conservation and whether they be a hunter or a non-hunter, treat them equally as is now starting to happen? Why don't we develop television shows that celebrate the animal? I mean, there's a million things that can be done. Yeah. I mean, you know, and there's there's good efforts starting along these roads, uh, Ben. I mean, there are companies, you know, that are, that are out that are starting to do really good things in this world about, about conservation and the, and the new films that are being produced by some of those companies are excellent and we're, and we're seeing some movement in the television world. We're, we're starting to see this, but we need to do it all much harder and much faster. Yeah. As I've said to many people running our hunting conventions today, that the non-hunting world the day that the non-hunting world, and I would say even the anti-hunting world, can find something of real value and merit for them on that floor, hmm. then we will have begun to move forward in the way that Teddy Roosevelt imagined. Yeah. Yeah, do you think... That man Go ahead. was a fanatic about songbirds. He loved birds more than he loved hunting. Yeah. Yeah, a naturalist. Anyone who knew him knew this. A naturalist. Yeah. Do, yes. Do you feel like uh, going forward, you know, there is this mentality in hunting that I've seen, and I've seen it propagated by a lot of very famous folks, a lot of some of the, the figureheads of our industry um, from a celebrity standpoint, that said every hunter should, should support every hunter, like this idea of tribalism. Like we must... If we don't all support each other, we'll fall um, at our core. Or if, if, if we don't support every type of hunting, every hunter or every pursuit, then we somehow fail. I uh, personally don't agree with that. Do you feel like that's part of the reason why change hasn't been as apparent for the hunting world? Um. I know that some people feel that way, and I have some empathy for the position because, you know, if, if the hunting community, just like any other community, a political party or a country, you know, is just <clears throat> constantly consumed by infighting, then clearly that's, that's not a good thing, and it destabilizes the best of messages and the best of intentions. So I have an empathy for that viewpoint. But like you, I feel there's a limit to this. Mm. I feel that we have to, we have to realize that hunting has to be made relevant in a modern society. We cannot continue to treat it as though it is an experience of the American and Canadian frontier. Hmm. We have moved a long way from the days of Lewis and Clark. We've moved a long way from the days of Audubon. We've moved a long way from the days of Roosevelt. We've moved a long way from the days of Leopold. We've moved 50 to 60 years beyond the days of Rachel Carson and Silent Spring. 50 to 60 years, a generation. And we have to make this activity, this oldest of human activities, 
we have to make this relevant to a modern society. We have to normalize hunting in a modern society. And when you start to think about those as your goals, which they are mine, mm. I wish to normalize it. I don't wish to exceptionalize it. I don't wish to make it exceptional. I want to make it relevant. Um, then you start to think about doing things very differently. Sure. You start to think about new organizations. You start to think about new magazines. You start to think about new television shows. You start to think about new marketing possibilities. You start to think about new coalitions. You start to think about things like food, wild food. You start to think about people who um, love animals and you want to be able to reach out to them and talk to them about your own love of animals. Um, you start to explain the fact that the rancher, who is still believed to care very much for his animals, as he does, or the small-scale farmer, who does care very much for their animals, they know those animals will die. In fact, they're raising them for death. Yet they have managed to maintain a position in society that's viewed as relevant and valuable, and they are believed to really care for their animals. Mm. Isn't that true? It is. So we need to ask ourselves the question, why do so many people believe that we don't care? Is it really the animal death issue? Because that's just the same for the rancher and the farmer. Maybe it's us. Maybe it is. Yeah. And and I think there is introspection needed. And I, I appreciate yours uh, personally. And then the forced, you know, forced introspection that we can all get from conversations like these. I think it is absolutely essential to challenge every idea um, and everything that, that we believe is true. Because uh, as I'm sure you our our upbringings are very different, but I'm I'm sure as you have come to to be a part of this broad conservation movement, you've changed your ideals and and adjusted with your expanded knowledge and and the more you've known, the more that you have theorized new things. And I think that is that's true for me as a hunter to a smaller scale than sure. you, but I think that every hunter should listen to your words and just and, and start to examine the ways in which they act uh, and the ways in which their groups act and how that can be, be better constituted to get to the goals that, that, that you put forward. Um, yes, I, I, I totally agree with you, Ben. And I, I, I would say this too, <clears throat> you know, despite the fact that in this podcast we have covered, you know, a lot of intense areas and problematic areas and so on and so forth. The, 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 um, the resilient truth is that, when the hunter, man, woman, young, old, and when the hunting community of every admixture uh, operates at its best with a conservation ethic in mind, with the idea of what is best for wildlife in mind, it is, a, it is an unsurpassed force for the good of wildlife. Hmm. Um, and the frustrations that some of us carry every day when we are embedded in these debates every day 
is that we know that to be true. And what I am trying to do in my small world of influence and with the time and energy I have is to unlock that part of the hunting world and to chip away at things that that limit that potential and mm-hmm. to set it free as it was set free at the turn of the 20th century. Absolutely. Uh, and which history proves did an absolutely uh, unbelievable thing. Uh, all the odds were against us. Yeah. As a nations, I mean, not just as hunters. Well, all so, the odds were against our nations. Well, you think about whitetail, whitetail deer. I mean, 500,000 yeah. of them in 1937. Today there's 30 yeah. million of them. Yeah. And that is unbelievable. Um, and is. as we've often said, and in this greater conversation, there's not, this isn't, you know, some big, uh, attempt just to be negative. It is, it's, it's an attempt to talk through some of the tougher things and get to the point where we all know where we have to be is that, that you're the, the reason that hunting has changed my life and conservation surely has changed yours is that it is, it is transformative in many ways. So that's why it's important to me and to you and why these conversations happen. So, um, I think that's a good way to end it. But before we get out of here, I want you to tell everybody, um, you know, about the Wild Harvest Initiative, about something we've discussed in the past and something I think is very important going forward and, and um, something you've been working very hard on in the recent past. Yes, well, uh, this is very uh, apropos because, of course, um, it came out of my thinking, uh, much like the discussions we've had today. It came out of my thinking and my search for something that would make hunting really relevant in a modern society. And um, and instead of fighting social trends, to set it up in a way that is shows how it is actually working with important social trends. And this led me to the idea of the growing concern that people have for you know health. Um, for the role that the environment around them plays in maintaining or harming uh, their health, and with the concern that people have, especially with respect to the quality and source uh, of their food. And um, in thinking about all of this, I began to wonder, well, how much wild food do we really, as hunters and as anglers, you know, harvest in Canada and the United States given that, you know, 40, 45 million of us participate in those activities every year. And just knowing from myself and from friends and colleagues just, you know, how much wild meat uh, some individuals uh, consume and just how many people they share it with. So I launched this, uh, what's called the Wild Harvest Initiative. It is a continent-wide assessment of the harvest of wild fish uh, and birds and mammals. Um, uh, you know, on in Canada and the United States, um, it is bringing together the, the list of all species, obviously, and the list of all harvests that are recorded by the management agencies. It is um, estimating, obviously, the the total biomass or total weight, pounds, kilograms of you know of that harvest for all species. Um, then determining through uh, various sources the actual consumable uh, weights of all of that harvest, uh, working with economists 
to give it a fair market value. And we are obviously talking billions, billions of pounds of wild food that is harvested uh, to give that a, uh, an actual uh, economic value, a real economic value in today's market if it was in the marketplace. And then to work with agricultural scientists and others to say, well, okay, we have this commodity, it is worth this amount, it is providing this amount of food to people. Now what would happen if we ended hunting and angling? You know, What would it cost society to mm-hmm. actually replace all of this wild food? Along the way, we will be establishing a sharing index to indicate just how many people, uh, those individuals who do hunt and uh, fish, how many people they actually share that wild harvest with. So we get some idea of the, the ripple effect or the, the generosity footprint of this activity mm. in society. Um, and um, then uh, we intend, of course, to, to mobilize this knowledge in the context and in coalition with people who harvest other things from the natural world, such as wild fruits and wild berries, and wild mushrooms, and and so on and so forth, medicinal plants, uh, to again uh, pursue my goal of uh, normalizing uh, hunting and demonstrating to a modern public, not the world I grew up in, because it has passed, but to a modern public, why this activity remains relevant and why people should consider engaging in it or coming to understand that the people who do engage in it are doing something that is very honorable and worthwhile. Um, I see the trends of where hunters and anglers are coming from, you know, what demographic, what locations, and it is very clear that it is possible uh, to reach people, uh, bending back on the earlier part of our conversation, who mm-hmm. live in, you know, uh, urban areas and so on and so forth, because they are very much concerned with uh, with this issue of, of food and the quality of food. Um, this is an attempt on my part to bring hunting before the modern public in a way that they're already uh, sensitive to, which, as I said, is the quality of their of their food. And I'll also be emphasizing the other aspects, health benefits uh, of this activity in terms of uh, emotional. Uh, sensitivities, you know, the time spent in the outdoors and in nature, uh, the physical uh, activity benefits uh, of the activity, so appealing to the broader issues of human health, Mm. for which there is a growing body of scientific evidence, of course, Um, and just trying, as I said, to make people understand that while this activity may not be for everybody, while not everybody will be a rancher, not everybody will be a farmer, Uh, For a group of people in society, this is a way for them to take responsibility for the meat they consume, and most people in society do consume meat, Um, and at the same time, demonstrating that this is the largest environmentally friendly food procurement system in existence. We do not destroy habitat, we defend it. Mm -hmm. We do not despoil the environment, we protect it. Um, and at the same time, we share, we have this virtually insane drive to share this wild food with friends, family, colleagues, and even strangers. Absolutely. As I've said in many lectures over many years, um, 
none of us will go to the grocery store and buy uh, a beef roast or a chicken and bring it to our neighbors and give it to them. Yet as soon as we harvest a deer, harvest an elk, harvest wild mushrooms, harvest wild berries, harvest wild fish, the very first thing we want to do is to share this. Hmm. We want to give it to somebody. We want to have them for dinner. And when we do share it with them, they're absolutely delighted to receive it. And they immediately want to share it. They'll say, oh, thank you. Well, you know, my son is coming to dinner tomorrow night. I'm going to cook that for him. Or, uh, you know, my, my father and mother would love to have that, so I'm going to share this meal with them. Hmm. There is something innately human about the drive to share wild harvested food. And um, we are about to launch a major communication effort with the help of now 27 uh, partners, which include, uh, you know, industry groups such like Leupold and Sitka and Yeti and groups such as that, as well as with state agencies in Nevada and Florida and Texas and a wide variety of NGOs, uh, Wild Sheep Foundation, Dallas Sportsman's Alliance, SCI, Houston, I mean, a lot of uh, Elk Foundation, a lot of NGOs, too many to mention. Mm. We're about to soon start to launch uh, the information from this. We have built the database. We have an amazing and the most knowledgeable database now, or informed database on all of this. And I'm really looking forward to it being a way to have comfortable conversations about hunting with people from very, very diverse backgrounds. As a medical doctor from the San Francisco Bay Area said to me uh, at the end of a lecture about a couple of weeks ago, she said, um, um, you know, there are many people in the San Francisco Bay Area who are opposed to hunting. But she said there are a lot more people in the San Francisco Bay Area who are fanatical about new culinary experiences. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And one of the things they really are intrigued with and interested in are these wild harvested foods. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's just my attempt to, to seek in the middle of all of this debate, Ben, a quiet space that I know will matter to people. I'm not trying to make them hunters. I'm not trying to make them anglers, although I'd be delighted if they would be open to that, sure. just trying to make them understand that this is relevant and the reason it's relevant is because it's about healthy time in nature and the harvest of food of the highest quality that we take responsibility for ourselves. Absolutely. Well, as a hunter, I appreciate, you know, not only your words, which are well-spoken, but your actions in that regard. I think that's um, the ability you have to to articulate these ideas, but then also help them stand up with this data and these, these efforts, I think is, is, um, can be revolutionary. And I appreciate you sharing those and, and sharing the rest of your story. And, um, I thank you, Shane, for your time. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. Take right. care of yourself. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. That was a good one. Episode number five in the books. I want to thank, of course, Mr. Shane Mahoney, for all that he does and who he is uh, and for his efforts with the Wild Harvest Initiative and Conservation Visions. If you want to learn a little bit more about that, you can go to conservationvisions.com, uh, click on Wild Harvest Initiative. You can learn more about his efforts there. I think those could possibly be industry-changing numbers that comes out of his study of where our wild meats go. 
and why they're important. Thanks again to all of you for listening to episode number five. You can go to thehuntingcollective.com to check out the other four episodes, including John Dudley, Ryan Callahan, Steve Ranella, Aubrey Marcus. There's videos there. There are articles there. There's a bunch of stuff at thehuntingcollective.com. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher. If you'd like this podcast, roll over to iTunes, give it a review, hit subscribe, tell all your friends to do the same. For now, that's all we have. We're going to be joined next week by the one and only Remy Warren, my good friend, and someone you all want to hear from. So thanks again. Bye. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.